Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Katie Chaffee, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Quebec in Montreal. Dr. Chaffee, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Well, thank you for having me thinking of my work. Yes, uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Kim Knowles, Citation 83. I'm not sure if we talked about it during the recorded episode, but she's the one that told me I should interview you because she thought you would make a very interesting guest. So that's high praise coming from your PhD supervisor, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. Kim was my PhD supervisor uh, and master's supervisor as well. She's about as nice as person you can you can ever you can ever meet. So I know there are some horror stories about you know PhD supervisors out there. Did you seek her out or did you just kind of get lucky? If I'm being honest, I mostly got lucky, I think. Like I didn't know as like that she was so nice until she called me for my like interview for after I'd applied to work with her for grad school. I mean, that's that's cool because I mean the lucky thing is is pretty common. I was I mean, when I talked to Peter McIntyre, he had never heard of Gardner. Like while he was doing his PhD search, he he had never heard of Robert Gardner, and so that's kind of strange when you think back and you you read the literature and these the, there are these seminal papers with Gardner and McIntyre, and you hear that story. So like, mm-hmm. oh, I didn't really know who Gardner was until you know I kind of did some research and and then I met Gardner and it was oh it was really great and we then we, off and off we were running. It's just wow. It it's funny you you read you read back these these papers and you kind of make these own narratives. It's funny. It's it's kind of hard to imagine if Gardner and McIntyre never met, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. There's like there always seems to be a surprising amount of luck that comes up in uh, these kind of things. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. So the paper that we are going to be discussing today is a paper that was published in 2014, part of a special issue on positive psychology. And the name of the paper is Learning from Author... Oh, geez. Let me try this again. Learning from Authoritarian Teachers, Controlling the Situation or Controlling Yourself Can Sustain Motivation. This was written by yourself, uh, Kim Knowles, as we mentioned, and Maya Sugita McCown. Was this this another PhD candidate with you in Alberta? Uh, She was Kim's postdoc. Okay. Um, while I was working on my master's. I see. Okay. And and now you are a postdoc. Yes. What, what exactly is Montreal. that? What is a postdoc? So I've graduated. I've finished my PhD, but I'm still in a semi-training position working as like a combination of like paid intern and you know, professional researcher in someone else's lab. Uh, so I'm in, I went from psychology with Kim Knowles, and now I'm in an education department uh, learning about research in educational psychology um, with Isabel Plant. With with who again? Sorry, I didn't hear the name. Uh, Isabel Plant. How um, did you get, how did you end up with her? Uh, actually, I read some of her papers while I was working on my PhD and was really inspired by them. I based some of my analyses I did in my dissertation on one of her papers. So when I was finishing up my degree, I just emailed her and mm. asked if she was looking for a postdoc and if there were any grants we could apply for so I could come and work with her in Montreal. And she said yes. And I got lucky again because she's also very nice and very supportive and a great mentor. Well, how's it going as a postdoc? Um, It's going really well. I have a bunch of papers in the pipeline. It's definitely a shift from um, the paper like you invited me on here to talk about because now I'm I'm, uh, working on how stereotypes uh, influence boys and girls' meth motivation in 
language arts in their native language primarily, and also in math as a comparison subject. Are so you kind of stereotyped the opposite way? So you're living in Montreal now? Yes. Oh, that's a great city. That is a great city. Yes. I mean, it the win- the winter time city. is brutal. Um, but I I've I've been to Montreal a few times and uh for anyone that's never been to Montreal, especially if you live in the United States, in the in the, mm-hmm. that region, you know, the Northeast. Yeah. Uh, it is such a, it's only like a six hour drive from New York City. Uh, I kind of tell people, you know, who have never been to the United States, people I meet in Japan, you know, oh, I really want to go to New York. And I say, look, if you're going to go to New York, make sure you go to Montreal too. It's just, it's just, a, it's just an incredible city. Do you like it as well? Oh, yes. I love it. And uh, the winter, like compared to Edmonton, <laughs> it's nothing. Oh right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's. All right. Let's get into your background a bit, because uh, you, you you're very uh, prolific as a Canadian. Um, uh, I was going to say a Canadian liver. That's a strange way to say. Uh, so let's go back as far as you want to go. Uh, you know what? What kind of brought you down this path? Was was it was it someone you met in elementary school, or or was it the love of languages early on and, and kind of where did you grow up and, and, and take us up hmm. until 2014? So I guess I'll start in college, university. Um, you know, I studied foreign languages. I did ended up doing a Japanese minor because I thought it would be really cool to learn a language that had a different alphabet. Hmm. Um, so I kind of semi-randomly started studying Japanese, ended up minoring in that, majored in psychology, and I think I was in my third or fourth year of undergrad when I took a cultural psychology class, hmm. um, and that was with Beth Morling, and like it kind of combined these two things, and it was so interesting um, to see to learn about how like some of the things we learned as universal psychological concepts might be different if you speak a different language Mm. or if you live somewhere different or if you're from a different culture like Japan. And I thought that was really cool, but it kind of threw my future plans into some disarray because I was thinking, oh, maybe I want to be like a therapist or maybe I want to be a lawyer, which is totally unrelated. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So in the end, I actually ended up going on the JET program Mm. and living in Japan for three years. Wow. Whereabouts in Japan? Oh, I lived on Sado Island in Niigata Prefecture. Wow. Okay. I've never been there. And I really recommend visiting there to anyone who goes to Japan. Like, I don't know if you've ever been there, um, but I would really recommend visiting there because it's very beautiful, very cool, very like old style Japanese culture. So it's like seeing another side of Japan than visiting Tokyo or somewhere. So three years—that's that's a pretty long time, you know. Some people don't even last a year. Some people leave after a year. It seems. Yeah. Three years—that means you're kind of committed. I mean, were you thinking about staying longer? Uh, I mean, kind of. Like, I did really like it, but I also was ready to start applying to graduate school and mm-hmm. like. Um, I decided I was interested in doing research about like culture and language and motivation. And I think that's the reason Kim accepted me as her student was because she thought it was cool that I had some like English teaching experience in Japan. So when you're talking about these universal psychological concepts and applying them to people of different languages, is there anything that stood out during your time in Japan that you could give us a tangible example of, of kind of what that means? Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. That's hard. Let's see. Uh, It's been a while since I was there too. Um, Well, I mean, one that's relevant, I guess, to the paper we're talking about today is something that I first learned about in that cultural psychology class I took about, I took with Beth Morling was this idea of like primary and secondary control Mm. that Americans, when they want to exert a sense of agency are, you know, relatively more likely Mm -hmm. to, you know, do something. So 
for example, if you're, this is the example I like to use, like if you're in a room, like your office or something, and it's a little bit cold, mm-hmm. what do you do first? Do you reach for the thermostat or open the window or close the window? You know, you know what I mean? Do mm. you reach for the thermostat or do you reach for your sweater? Mm. Um, and that's kind of this difference between primary and secondary control, where an American might be relatively more likely to reach for the thermostat compared to reaching for the sweater first. Mm. Whereas in Japan, you know, you'll have people in the like I definitely saw this in the teacher's room, you know, people will be adding sweater and sweater and sweater before they turn up the heat. Mm. Well, I mean, I think that's a great place. I mean, I'm just thinking about the class you're taking in an undergraduate where it, it's, I can see why you're interested because on one hand, you're learning about these universal finger quotes, psychological principles, but then you're also saying, well, you know, depending on the culture you're in, there could be some variance here. And I would say Japan mm-hmm. is a great place to go if you want to get a different perspective on on how people view the world, right? It's just a totally yeah. It's a totally different different culture. All right. So then why did you end up going to the University of Alberta? I mean, I was talking to you before we started recording. So you're an American, you went to the University of Delaware for your undergrad. Now now yeah. you're in Japan. Did you find <laughs> Like what, what kind of school were you looking all over the place or, I mean, university of Alberta, that seems kind of, um, seems kind of random, right? (laughs) I mean, I was looking anywhere that had like a focus on culture in their program and where I could do my PhD in English. Got it. Okay. All right. So then you go to the university of Alberta and you end up staying there for your master's and your PhD, right? Yes. And the yes. and so the winters there you're saying are much are much colder than Montreal. Yes. Not <laughs> as snowy, but a lot colder, which is I mean, well, I mean I love the snow, so all in all prefer Montreal's winter. And so all right, now now orient us with the timeline. So this paper that we're talking about today was written in 2014. So where were you in this masters and PhD journey? Well, I guess by the time it came out as published, I had finished my master's. But in terms of a study, this was the first study that I like came up with the idea for mm-hmm. on my own and went to my supervisor. I went and sat in Kim Knowles's office and said, okay, I have this idea and I'd like to test it out. Mm-hmm. And this was the very first like project that you know, I was the one who had the initial idea for as a master's student. So I think it was like the second half of my first year as a master's student was when I came up with the idea for the study. And again, the name of the paper is learning from authoritarian teachers, controlling the situation or controlling yourself can can sustain motivation. I think the third time I read that title, I'm going to get it perfect. Um, So Tell us, how did you come up with this idea? Because we're going to talk about a few concepts in the paper, but overall, this this idea, you know, the title is very catchy. Um, I mean, beyond having a cool... Titles are hard. <laughs> beyond having a cool title, I mean, talk us through this idea. Where, where did this all come from? Well, so it came from, you know, I was working with Kim Knowles. I was reading a lot about self-determination theory and how... You know, if the situation doesn't support your autonomy, then how can you possibly be motivated? Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking, but like, you know, I always really liked languages. I liked, uh, you know, learning languages. I thought it was cool. I felt like, you know, for some students, having a bad teacher isn't going to be enough to turn them off. Mm -hmm. So what are they doing that lets them keep motivated even if the context is not supportive to you know feeling autonomous necessarily and maintaining your motivation um and one of the things i thought of was this primary secondary control idea um, from my cultural psychology class Mm. Uh, and i wondered if maybe you know one of the like i was thinking about the fact that you know, students in the same class 
might have a very different take on, you know, the same teacher, mm. the same exact situation. Um, you know, what you're bringing to the situation matters too. It's not just about objectively is the instructor controlling or not. So I wondered about this primary and secondary control idea and I thought, okay, so if the instructor is controlling, but you're someone who has a tendency to look inward and exert agency by changing something about yourself and adapting and being flexible, um, is that going to help you to maintain motivation even if you don't like your teacher? Yeah, I think this is something that, you know, I don't know if you're a fan of sports, but, you know, scouts who are looking for, you know, these top prospects, I think this is something that they look for a lot. You know, this, I I think they, they more categorize it as confidence where, you know, you're not affected by positive or negative feedback, whether it's from your coach or whether it's from your teammates or your family or the media, you just, you know, you're, you're autonomous, you know, um, but as far as the controlling, so you kind of centered on this idea of the controlling teacher. Did you mm-hmm. have an authoritarian teacher growing up where you had this concept of what an authoritarian teacher was? Yeah. Because when I read this paper, I, I, I was thinking that you had this concept of what uh, this type of teacher or the negative of effect, effects this teacher could have. Um, like I thought you had a clear idea of it in your mind. Now, as I read through the paper, it it wasn't, it wasn't really as as clear cut as that you were, you were surveying this idea of an authoritarian teacher, you know, based on the contract of the survey. It wasn't like a, I kind of had this, the the way I envisioned the, uh, the study was really different than how it actually was. (laughs) I mean, maybe I sort of had this dramatic, I like you're hiring an actor and, and you're comparing before I read the paper. Right. So mm. I was thinking about the actual qualities of an, of of this ca- kind of teacher. I guess you're you're from what your your response you weren't really thinking like in those terms of a personality type. Oh. Well, uh I mean it's not that I wasn't. I actually I actually later in my PhD, later in my PhD I actually tried to design a study like that where we manipulated <laughs> the controllingness uh, and it was really difficult it to is, train it does someone sound to be yeah. like so consistent and like consistently authoritarian in one condition and the same person consistently be nice in the other condition mm. like yeah it was very challenging here in this study I just used you know the students reports of what they felt about the teacher so I would mm. say when I was thinking of this study like I probably had some practices in mind of like, you know, kinds of teachers that I had had or observed when I was, you know, an assistant English teacher in Japan, maybe, um, who were more or less, you know, autonomy supportive or controlling. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't say I had, you know, some specific bad guy in mind at all. See, this is an interesting topic and, in- you talk about it in the paper, this idea, I mean, there's almost like they're related, but they're, they're, they're different to this idea of controlling teachers, but also compulsory education. Yes. Because, yeah. and you mentioned Asia, right? So, and I could really relate to this as a teacher at university. You know, I, I mainly teach first and second year students in Japan and they have this compulsory English requirement where they're required mm-hmm. to take a total of four classes, two first year and two second year. And yeah. I don't see the authoritarian control factor as big an issue as the compulsory education factory factor. Mm. Um, so I, for me, I feel like I can be somewhat of an authoritarian teacher just to maintain control and to you know keep the class in order because there are actually some people that are fighting back against the compulsory education component and they're kind of acting up in class. So oh, I'm yeah. trying to maintain order. I don't, I, I think the fact that they have to do it is more demotivating than someone who's just actually, you know, look, I don't think it's personal. You know, if they dislike me going into the class, you know, mm-hmm. they might, a lot of times, uh, you know, I talk about this with my colleagues. I think some of these, these kids are already, they're beyond saving by the time they get to us. 
So yes, maybe having mm-hmm. that controlling teacher when they were in the middle school and high school, but by the time by the time they get to college, I don't they think decided. it really I don't think it really matters what, what kind of teacher it is. They've already decided, uh-huh. right? So that person who's going to be autonomous when they get to the university, they're going to be. The person that's like done with language and they're just going to get through. It's I I find uh-huh. it, I, I think it'd be very hard to turn someone around, at least in my context in Japan by the time they get to university. Oh, that's a great point. So you think you think in Japan universities too late to study anything like this because the context of compulsory English is just too controlling already regardless of what the teacher has done. Yeah, and I think I think some kids get turned off by certain teachers and certain things earlier on. And Japan's also unique where in university, it's, it's just, it's almost this hiatus from society. A lot of these kids don't really study that hard and they're not really, and they're not really worried about their grade. And it's not like in America where you actually put your GPA or your grade point average for it's, you just have the diploma, either you graduate or you don't. So no employer is going to ask you, you know, which, which, you know, what, what your grades were. And so a lot of a lot of these kids, I mean, I, there are kids I can see that are autonomous and they like language, but that's because they maybe they had a good experience. They 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 had a great teacher in mm-hmm. high school, or they traveled with their parents somewhere, and they had this. And they're not really affected by these other kids in the class that are demotivated. I would say the reason why I was really interested in this paper because I would say I tend to be more of an authoritarian teacher in this context. So I teach part-time at another university where a lot of those kids are, are highly motivated. They chose the program. It's more of an international relations program. It's, it's much more competitive. At that university, I'm a totally different teacher. Oh, at the teacher, at the, at the school where it's, you know, where this compulsory thing, and you know, a lot of students are demotivated. I'm much more authoritarian. Um, because I just don't yeah, think, yeah, I'm, I'm more like, I want to get these students through. I don't want the, the students that are demotivated to disturb the students that might, you know, are just trying to concentrate. Um, it's like, they know it's a, it's a strict requirement. I know it's a strict requirement. Um, because when I first started teaching there, I was, I was much more nice and much more laid back. And those students, you know, they kind of like, you know, they stepped all over me. They, you know, they, they pushed me uh-huh. for deadlines. They, and then I realized, oh, they're just, they just, they just want to get the credit. They don't really care. Um, and then once I became more strict, it just became a lot easier for everyone. Uh, and I don't know if that relates to like the, the, the more, I don't know. I, th- I think a lot about this stuff cause I'm doing karate now. Um, and I, and my teachers are very author- authoritarian, but I think it's good. Because I don't know about karate. I need to be taught this. And there's these little kids, you know, these, you know, white belts like me running around. They're like, you know, if they don't keep order in the class, no one's going to learn anything, right? Mm. Um, So maybe this is like a different conversation. But that's why I initially was interested in this, in this uh, paper, because I was, I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I can be authoritarian in in some contexts, but not in the other. Uh, I don't Mm. know if this is, this is another research area or is this is things you were thinking about as well oh yeah a little bit so like i don't know if it made it into the final draft of the paper or not but you know one of the things i wrote about when i was thinking about this paper and writing about these issues was that you know um you could have a teacher who's very like okay these are the directions i'm going to be very specific and very like kind of like you describe in the karate about having a certain structure and, um, and, you know, some students might interpret that as controlling, but mm. maybe some students would interpret that as, you know, being a support for their learning and giving them a good structure to help them along. Um, so that was c- kind of part of what I was interested in here was like, what makes students decide what's authoritarian and how that affects them um, kind of thing. And another thing you said that was really interesting was about this, like, like just about the context in Japan. And it, like, you really just made me see right now how 
hard it is to do a direct comparison of university students in um, Japan and Canada, which is what I did for my master's thesis, because, you know, in Japan, it's the compulsory English, the students might be demotivated, it's not great, um, the teachers might, you know, kind of have to take this authoritarian attitude because of you know, behavior problems in class from people being already demotivated anyway. Mm. Whereas in Canada, like at least, you know, at the University of Alberta where I did this study, um, language, foreign language is compulsory for certain majors, but not others. And like, even if it's compulsory for your major, you still have a choice of which language you want to take out of like 10 or 12 or something options. Mm. So it's much like, even though it's sort of compulsory, it's to a much lesser extent than what goes on in Japan. Yeah. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll have the caveat where this is just my own personal opinion. Other people might have, other people might have different ideas about it, but that's, um, from from my perspective, I do consciously change my personality because I can like I like I said I teach at two different environments, and I'm totally different from one to the other. When I know the students, you know, are you know, would you call them self determined? Is that an adjective? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when I know students are self determined and, and autonomous, I back way off, way 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 off. Um, but if I know students are demotivated. I'll be much more authoritarian and then I find that they back off and then maybe that gives them some space to come back, come back around. But if I, if I, if I'm too nice to the demotivated students, it does not help their motivation at all. It just makes them more of a powerful force than me in the class. I don't, again, this is just my oh, yeah, perspective, yeah. right? Yeah, because like they don't have any of those internalized reasons for language learning. So if you're not going to sit there and make them, then they might not do it at all. Right. Yeah, it does make sense. And and a lot of times, some of these students that they that some of these students have had bad experiences in the past. Like I said, middle school or high school, where some maybe at some point they're motivated and maybe they did have that controlling teacher early on, and it really affected them. Um, mm -hmm. but then again, we're talking about going back to SDT or autonomy, you know, now we're talking about someone at a different age and that brings up this other variable, right? So people, when you're younger, you're much less likely to be autonomous, right? So if you had that controlling teacher, when you're in middle school or in elementary school, it's much more likely to affect you than if you're already this kind of autonomous, like it's, it's hard to be autonomous, right? Well, I mean, when we're talking about autonomy with younger kids, we're not talking about like they can go out and live on their own and have a job or, you know, anything like that. We're talking about like, it's more about their subjective sense that they're able to do things that they're doing because they want to or because they find it important, not mm. just because someone's telling them to. Like, it's not necessarily about, like, I'm completely able to, you know, self-regulate on my own or do things without assistance. It's about, like, am I able to do some stuff because I want to do it? Well, and the other word that that you bring up in the paper that I was thinking about as well in connection to autonomy was this idea of resilience, right? So yes. someone might be self-determined where they're doing it because they, they want, I guess we should, we should define self-determination theory. So for people that have never heard mm -hmm. of it, can you tell us about the components of it? Okay. So well, self-determination theory has, a bunch of components, but the ones that are important for understanding this paper are the idea that um, people can have different kinds of motivation. And what we mean by motivation is like your reasons for doing things. And there's a 
an element of quality to the different types of motivation that you can have. So you can have intrinsic motivation, which probably most people have heard of before, which is the idea of doing something because you find just doing that thing to be inherently fun or inherently interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you can also have um, kinds of motivation that are technically extrinsic because they're not about the activity itself per se, but um, those can be more or less internalized and personal. So the more internalized and personal your reasons for doing something are, um, then the more you're probably going to work hard and persist and have good outcomes at doing that thing. Um, so, you know, the extrinsic reasons range everything from, you know, I want to do this because being good at this language or whatever is part of who I am, or I want to be good at this language because it's really important for the future career I want. I want to, you know, put subtitles on video games or something. Um, or you can have totally controlled reasons, which are like, I'm just in this class because it's a requirement for my degree. I needed to get that diploma so that I can get a job, mm. a job that's not related to this. Yeah, I, I, I thought you did a good job in the paper of of outlining all these concepts. So I, I, I really recommend people going back and, and reading the paper. Um, you know, there's there's a scale which you do you do a good job of of explaining where like you just did, you know from you know, intrinsic is kind of is kind of what we want as far as that that's the key right you're you're self-driven right and then on the other spectrum is external regulation and and the various things in between you also talk about these three fundamental psychological needs oh yes relatedness yes. competence and autonomy right so mm-hmm. i mean yeah, there's a lot how much yeah go ahead yeah Oh, yeah, sorry. And how much you feel like those three needs are being satisfied in whatever context or class or whatever you're talking about, that's what's supposed to determine how far along that self-determined intrinsic motivation continuum you get pushed. Yeah, I guess what I was trying to to say is, because I, like I said, some of these kids, I, I see that they're already, there's nothing I can do. They're, they're already in mm-hmm. that mindset or like that, the, the thing you just mentioned, I, I need this course for my degree, whether it's, a, if, if it doesn't matter which course it is, they're, they're looking through a lens. This is, this is just an element I need mm-hmm. to get what I need, right? It has nothing. It could be a math class. It could be, I, yeah. I don't, they could be thinking about the, these other courses as well. I don't really know. But I was thinking, you know, was there this point in time, was there a particular incident that set them down this path and could that have been changed? And then when I was thinking about reading this paper is, well, well, was, what is the, you know, are, are there levels to being self-determined, right? So is the ultimate definition of being self-determined that you wouldn't be affected by somebody? But then I think, well, if you're younger and you're quote unquote self-determined and you have intrinsic motivation, you probably could still be pushed off your path by somebody or some circumstance, Right. Yeah. If you had this controlling teacher in the seventh grade, let's say like you in elementary, you're you're in sixth grade, right? And you went on this trip to France, and and you're all you're really motivated to study French, and you had this great experience, and you're studying French at home, and and then and then you have this middle school teacher in the eighth grade who's just this really mean person, and they just take you off French. You're just like, ah, I'm done with that. So I guess mm. you know. W- how do you view self-determined in that way? Does that does that mean okay, you you were self-determined and now you're not, or is the definition of okay, I guess you really weren't? Yeah. No, no, yeah, I would say it's more of a you were self-determined and now you're not. You had an experience with a controlling teacher or something that undermined your fundamental needs, and now it's put you off that thing at least temporarily. Like, I mean, well, there's kind of two things here. One is like something Kim always used to say and probably still says is that sometimes you might have a person who's just never going to be interested. Like not everyone is interested in everything and you know, maybe that's fine. Some people 
are just never going to be interested in learning English no matter what. And, you know, maybe that's okay. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some people, like, just because you're interested right now and self-determined about it right now doesn't mean that that's necessarily some permanent state. Mm. Like, like just because it's what you find interesting right now doesn't mean you're going to necessarily find it interesting forever. A bad experience could put you off or you could just, you know, get distracted by something else you like even more and, you know, lose track of doing that thing. But here's um, here's so- a question I have for you, and I, I'm just springing this on you because we didn't talk about it before. Have psychologists discussed this idea of a maturity age for self-determination? Because, again, bringing it back to the sports metaphor, or if you're, you know, we're talking, so especially, you know, the basketball or, or any sport, really, but especially basketball or baseball, if you're, if you find the right person, we're talking about a 20-year career, Um and if, if that person is really self-determined and they're not affected and they have intri- intrinsic motivation, I mean, that is a huge asset to have uh, instead of someone. So if you're looking at a prospect, two prospects, one, they're both 21 years old. One, one actually ends up quitting when they're 26. One actually plays until they're 38, right? So I was kind of thinking, is there this age of maturity where you can actually assess someone's self-determination? Like I, because I would say that in middle school, maybe you're not mature enough to be totally self determined. Uh-huh. Have you ever thought about that? Huh. I mean, I haven't really thought about it like that. Like, I mean, like in the moment, I would say that the more self determined person is going to be more likely to continue longer. But at the same time, uh, I mean, I haven't, I haven't looked at. I'm not super familiar with literature on like developmental self-determination across the lifespan, but I've always thought of it as something more like it can be affected by outside forces at any time. Like even in this paper, I'm saying like it gets affected by what the teacher does, but maybe certain features of the person can help them to be less affected, but like, it's not the self-determination that means that um, you might not be affected by outside forces that could make you feel like your needs for autonomy and competence and relatedness are, you know, being undermined now. Like, even if you love something, um, like, I think it could still be possible as an adult that um, a bad environment where, you know, you're doing the thing you love, but the context is not good could put you off of it. Like I'm thinking of like professional chefs and stuff who mm-hmm. I've heard. I don't, I don't know a lot about sports, sorry, but I've heard like people say about professional chefs that doing the thing you love for a living can be a mistake. Cause then with professional chefs, they love cooking, mm-hmm. but then a lot of them come to hate it because of the like high pressure mm-hmm. environment and stress that's associated with that career. Yeah, I mean, it's so rare for someone to stick with something for a long period of time at a high level. And mm. all of those people seem to have the same qual- same quality. They're all autonomous. They're all, you know, self-determined um, in any field. And, you know, someone who has a, a career, these long careers where they're doing something at a very high level, no matter what the craft is, they all seem to have the same thing. Um even some of them having it all the way from the time that they were kids. Mm-hmm. They, you know, even we're talking, you talk about, you know, I don't know, like any high skilled position. I, I feel like if you're hiring somebody, you would want this thing and it's a hard thing to determine over time, right? Especially mm, if you're, if you're definitely. about to give someone a 10 year contract, uh, how, how can you assess if someone's really self-determined unless you see them go through the ups and downs? And uh, I don't know, I guess the military, they try to assess this. I don't know, like the Navy SEALs. I, I know their, their training program. I don't know if it's necessarily self-determination. I don't know what exactly they're looking for, but they're definitely trying to make people quit 
they're definitely trying to make people break. They talk about this thing that people have that keeps them going, regardless of what's going on around them, right? I don't know if that's the same kind of thing we're talking about. Um, but I would just say it's rare. It's it's rare to find people have this thing over. I, I definitely, I, I, I have certain traits that have been consistent over time. But as far as like a specific thing, like I was really into playing the trumpet and then I wasn't and I quit. <laughs> so, I mean, was I self-determined? And then I, I guess I, I wasn't, right? Um, I don't know. I guess you kind of answered the question. But I, 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 th- I think, I yeah, think about I think that stuff. Yeah, I think it's a different trait. I think yeah. it might, I think it's a different kind of trait you're talking about. Like maybe stuff like grit or conscientiousness or, mm. you know, something else that lets you maintain the self-determination in the face of adversity, which is kind of what I was looking for. Um, you know, a thing that could do that in this paper. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. I, I went off on a big tangent there my, my bad uh, again the paper that we're talking about today is learning from authoritarian teachers controlling the situation or controlling yourself can sustain motivation um was there anything surprising to you uh during the course of the paper or as you were writing it up and looking at the data or did it kind of go the way you thought it would i mean in the paper you 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 acknowledge all of your hypotheses so did they all kind of go the way you thought they would go um, I mean, in a certain way, yes, like the main hypothesis from study two, where I was looking at, okay, does this secondary control stuff buffer the negative effect that a controlling teacher can have on your motivation? Mm-hmm. Um, and I pretty much found that it did, that when the instructor was controlling students who tended to, you know, use positive reappraisals to um, tell themselves that, you know, situations that seem bad are really okay. There's a silver lining. I can learn from adversity and, you know, self-talk type of things like that. Those students did better with a controlling instructor than students who tended not to do that. Mm. But what did surprise me was um, about, like, the structure of secondary control from the first half of the paper. Mm. I had this measure that was supposed to be about secondary control with these different subscales and different subtypes of secondary control. Um, And I was wondering like, which one was going to be important? How were they all going to work? And it was really mainly this positive reappraisal thing that came out and Yeah, so it was like, and positive reappraisal is also kind of just a coping strategy from the coping literature. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not necessarily always thought of as like a strategy to achieve a sense of control Mm -hmm. in your environment. It's also thought of as like a coping strategy. So I was not expecting to see that specific overlap in advance i thought secondary control was going to be like its own thing more Mm. if that makes sense yeah it does i mean because we're talking about components and subcomponents right um yeah so when you're talking about secondary control um you're talking about lowering aspirations vicarious which is kind of an interesting term and positive reappraisals so vicarious mm-hmm. is can you can you define that for people and th- that name it just sounds I don't know where they came up with that name. What what does vicarious mean or vic as far as the subgroup of secondary control? Um, it's kind of um, okay. So the idea is they're all supposed to be like responding to negative situations or any situation by changing yourself instead of trying to change the environment Mm because sometimes you can't change the environment so in those situations it seemed to me like this should be good and the vicarious one is where you try to feel a sense of control by somehow psychologically aligning yourself with other people Mm. Um, and like one of the example items was kind of like social comparison type stuff, like, oh, I'm not the only one getting bad grades in this class. I'm not mm-hmm. alone um, kind of things. 
Yeah. And so positive reappraisals. Now, for people that are interested, we talked about this a lot in the episode with Tammy Gregerson. And she was even saying in that episode that that's kind of her personality type. Um, I, I, we talked about it in that episode. I have a friend like this. I, I call it, you know, positive compartmentalization. He almost does it automatically. So if his <laughs> boss calls him and says, well, I need you to come into work at three in the morning. He, he, he says, oh, this is cool. Then I'll, I'll be off at work at 12. Like he mm. automatically thinks like he goes through life thinking like this. I think Tammy said in the interview that, you know, her husband is Chilean and they were living in America, in Iowa, and they, they got a call that there was this horrible earthquake in Chile. And then her first reaction was like, oh, this is great for the economy because they're going to be able to rebuild all these buildings, <laughs> right? So, what? Uh, yeah, so she's, she's you know, has got this, this, this tool in, you know, that she uses for herself. And so this idea of positive reappraisal or, you know, reframing, um, it seems to be coming up a lot now. Uh, now, again, this paper was written in 2014. Is this one of these big thing, these big themes that have emerged in the positive psychology literature? Is this one of the most powerful tools that people can use? Oh, man. Well, I don't know if I can answer that question. <laughs> um, because I've seen people, yeah, you know, focusing on that tool to cope hmm. as a coping method, right? Um, and in this paper, you're talking about more as a connection to motivation, right? But yeah. are you seeing it popping a lot, popping up a lot in the literature as well? Somewhat. I'm not looking at coping as much uh, more recently. But yeah, like I would say, it's definitely a tool that can help people. But no. At the same time, it's a bit, it's a bit like individualistic to focus mm. on positive reappraisals in a certain way, because, you know, sometimes the problem is the context. Sometimes mm. the problem, you know, isn't something you should just have to positively reappraise away. But, you know, when you can't uh, do anything about the environment as an individual, it seems like it can be a good thing to do. Yeah, I yeah, I agree. I mean I, I I'm 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 interested in mindfulness and I'm interested in you know, tools for positive psychology. But at the same time I'm also interested in, you know, like breathing exercises. Right? So sometimes this idea of a positive reappraisal does does sound attractive to me. But then when mm -hmm. I when I hear people talking about it too much, I think, oh it's just it's too much. Like the, I was listening to this woman talk the other day and she was, she was talking about mindfulness and she was talking about positive reappraisals and she was talking about reframing and she was saying something like, oh, okay, imagine you're having this meeting with your supervisor and the, super, the whole time the supervisor is checking their emails and they seem distracted. Instead of getting angry, maybe you should reframe the situation and say, oh, maybe your supervisor is, you know, busier. And, it just, and I thought, you know what, sometimes it's just, it's just too complicated and I don't want to think about it too mm -hmm. much. And I'd rather just, you know, take a walk or, or breathe. So I think, I think your answer was good. I'm throwing a lot of questions yeah. at you that I did not prep you for at all. So I apologize for that. <laughs> yeah, that's like, it's a criticism that I've been seeing more lately. And it makes me wonder about this paper a little bit is that people talking about things like, um, you know, we tell people, oh, to be mindful and do mindfulness and meditate and do positive reappraisals to solve your problems. But sometimes your problem is like, you're not getting paid a living wage or, mm. you know, stuff that maybe you should, you could use a more outward focused change. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I totally agree. Some, and again, it's like when you get into the mindfulness world, a lot of them are saying, yeah, well, do the meditation, right? And so calm your mind. Positive reappraisal is not really calming your mind. You're almost making up a narrative. But again, yeah. you talk to someone like Tammy Gregerson, where if that's just in her mind, that's how she goes about life. It's like, oh, that sounds great. Mm -hmm. it yeah. doesn't, you... It's a helpful tendency. But you're right. It's very individualistic. I think, I think you nailed it. Um, all right. So I guess I, 
I would recommend everyone to go back and read this paper. Um, again, the name of the paper is Learning from Authoritarian Teachers, Controlling the Situation or Controlling Yourself Can Sustain Motivation, especially if you've never heard of some of these principles. I think uh, you do a good job of setting the context for the paper and showing the interrelatedness of all the components. It's a very interesting study, and there's there's lots of directions you can go. I guess to finish off the interview, uh, you know where where are you now, and um, and you know w what what happened after you published this paper? What directions did you take? Oh yeah, yeah. After I published this paper, I did shift directions quite a bit with my like main line of research, um, and started studying why it seemed why there's such a gender gap in like foreign language majors and. Mm like foreign language and native language careers and motivation where um, boys are just so much less motivated than girls. And I've been looking into the role of stereotypes in that. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I, I researched some of that stuff as well, especially with like uh, foreign language anxiety or test anxiety. Um, so that's, yeah, that, that's really cool. Um, I, I, uh, maybe to, to finish off, do you have any advice for people that are, you know, thinking about getting a master's degree or thinking about starting a PhD? Um, you're almost at the very end of this, uh, at least the, the, the educational side. I know, it, I know it never ends, but as far as time hmm. management or writing or researching, any, any tips you've picked up along the way that you can pass on? Oh, man. Oh, what are good tips? Okay. Well, start using a reference manager like Zotero or Mendeley as early as possible. I've never heard of those. Um, oh, really? What can you oh, tell me yeah. about that? What is that? It's um it's a program. You put all your PDFs in it and you can sync your highlights and stuff between multiple computers and you can search your whole library of PDFs for certain keywords or certain authors. Uh, as you download more and more academic papers, it is so incredibly useful. Plus, you can also use it to make your um, references section for any articles that you write oh. uh, very quickly because it does the formatting for you automatically. You just copy paste it in there. Whoa. Yep. So definitely recommend one of those. What's the name of it again? Uh, Zotero. Z-O-T-E-R-O -E is probably the most popular one. There's another one called Mendeley. M-E-N-D-E-L-E-Y. Wow. Okay. I've never, I, I will start to do that. Zo yes. Zotero. Because I, I can't... I would never I, find anything otherwise. I mean, I waste so much time doing references. <laughs> That's why I started this podcast to get lost in citations. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, it'll help you get unlost in your citations <laughs> at least more so. That's great. Um, okay. So again, the name of the paper was learning from authoritarian teachers, controlling the situation or controlling yourself can sustain motivation. Dr. Katie Chaffee, thank you so much for coming on lost in citations. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.